The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast, episode number 28. 28. We always, you notice that we always, uh, one of us will say that what episode number it is and the other one repeats it. Yeah, that's our shtick now. It's our little, it's our bit. We do this bit. So how you doing, man? Pretty well. It's, uh, it's been almost a month since our last uh, episode. Well, yeah, but don't, don't beat yourself up because it was like Christmas and New Year's and all kinds of crap in between now and then. That's right. But we're, we're, we've got a really great episode this time and uh, it's about to come out. So really, there's going to be very little delay between you and I talking right now and this going out into the RSS feeds around the world. So enjoy that. Feel that RSS. You can really feel the S's, the extra mm, S's in the RSS there's feed. There's some S's right there. All right, cool. So uh, who is our interview with today? Uh, legendary film critic Leonard Maltin. Not just a legendary film critic, but probably the only film critic I personally know of who's written a book about cinematography. Yes, the only one that I know. And uh, hey, we're on a little film critic kick here, too, because, of course, we had Alonzo Duraldi uh, in our last episode. And awesome. And Leonard Maltin. And I understand that, like, Leonard and Alonzo know each other. I guess it's a pretty small circle of critic fans out there, friends yeah. out there. So uh, so this is great. So I'm really excited that Leonard's on the show. And uh Let's, I say we just unleash Leonard. We don't have anything else to talk about. What do we have to say that's any more interesting than what Leonard Malton has to say? Nothing is what. You're right. You're right. We have nothing. Here we go. Leonard Malton. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Today we are super excited to have legendary film critic, film writer, film journalist Leonard Malton. Thank you so much for coming all the way out to Burbank. All the way out to Burbank. Well, I live in the valley, so this is not a, a huge trek for me. <laughs> Sweet. But we got we got a we got a soft pedal that word legendary. That gets okay. To me, you are a legend. I grew up. I'm a child of the '80s. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm 46 years old now. I grew up watching you on Entertainment Tonight every week, mm-hmm. maybe every day. I don't know. It seems like you were on every day. It's not a lot. And it was a, a period of time where I feel like we saw a lot of film film reviewers. On television, we, you know, there was Cisco. Yeah, remember we were, that? Yeah, remember yeah. Remember that idea? Yeah. <laughs> well, and and a lot of people maybe today don't realize the position that, that film criticism has traditionally had and sort of what happens to the film world when what's going on today, which is, you know, kind of just a random universe of bloggers yep. with the occasional, you know, qualified person. Like, what is it that a, that a critic does that an average person who knows a lot about movies just is never going to do? Well, there are several things. I mean, for instance, I don't read a critic for the reason that a lot of people may read or listen to a critic, which is to find out, is it good or is it worth my time? If I'm going to read a review, even in the LA Times or the New Yorker magazine, which has several very, very intelligent writers working for them, uh, it's because I like the writing. It's because they're good essay writers and because they're also perceptive enough that they may teach me something about the movie. They may illuminate something that I didn't get, yeah. that I didn't understand, or that I didn't appreciate. That's to me is a really good critic and also uh, a good writer. And that, that's what I'm looking for. In the 80s, as you recall, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel uh, who were both newspaper men yep. in Chicago, 
and who had started a local TV station, uh, a local show on their public television station where they debated new movies, became national figures of great prominence and suddenly were uh, the walking definition of film critics. Oh, yeah. They were it. And uh, they were on The Tonight Show, The Today Show, The Letterman Show. I mean, they, they were everywhere all, all at once, it seems, because th- that's how much they defined and dominated this little space, this niche of film reviewing. Well, in part two, they, they themselves were just kind of characters. Well, yes. Well, that's the other thing. See, and when they left the public TV station and then the public TV network uh, and moved to a professional syndication or a commercial syndication, uh, <laughs> the PBS people tried to replace them Mm-hmm. And got two other guys. And then when those two other guys went into syndication, they made room for two other guys. I know <laughs> all these people, too. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but nobody had what they had. They had some uh, particular spark in their uh, conversations. It, it wasn't like a vaudeville act, exactly, but they, they really got in each other's nerves. Yeah, they were like William F. Buckley and yeah, Gore yeah, Vidal. exactly. Sniping exactly. at each other. Like there's videos you can find on YouTube of the two of them doing promos and yelling at each other. Yeah, between. yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, in, in the fullness of time and with the, the sad reality that both of them uh, became ill and died far long before their time, really, mm-hmm. uh, they, they came to express their affection for each other. Uh, but there was no such affection while they were doing that show. <laughs> well, that's half the and, reason and, and we would watch time, it. And at the time, to show you everything is cyclical, there were a lot of people who said they've reduced criticism to thumbs up or thumbs down because that was their gimmick. Yeah. We give this movie thumbs up or thumbs down. Uh, and now today people are complaining about Rotten Tomatoes and the tomato score, tomato meter, yeah. being a reduction again, a simplification, a dumbing down. Well, it's not as simple as that, I think. I'm a tomato, by the way. As I point out to people, <laughs> every tomato represents a critic. Correct. And so if you get rid of all the critics, there won't be any tomatoes to aggregate a score for Rotten Tomatoes. The other thing that, I'm rambling a bit here, but the other thing that I think critics can do, at, and this is my favorite part of the job, is they can champion a film. They can call attention to a smaller film that isn't going to get a $50 million, $100 million advertising and promotion budget. I mean, when... When Black Panther opened, everybody in the world knew it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, they also happened to like the movie, but they knew it was there. But smaller movies, like there's a current one right now that I'm championing, it's best I can call The Death of Stalin. Mm-hmm. Oh, I heard uh, about it. Oh, it's terrific. It's just, it's written and directed by Armando Iannucci, who created Veep, mm-hmm. and before that created an even more scathing British political uh, satire called The Thick of It. And he, I think he's brilliant. And this film is brilliant and funny, but not highbrow. It's telling a true story about the jockeying for power in the Soviet Union upon the death of Stalin, but it's played as a farce. It's silly, it's wildly exaggerated and hilarious, but also very, uh, very trenchant. And, yeah, I was about uh, to say, I, I can't really relate to what politics would be like if it was a farce. I'll have to see this movie to be educated. <laughs> well, I recommend it very highly. <laughs> Anyhow, so getting behind a, a movie that you care about, as Siskel and Ebert did. All the time. You know, uh, they were credited for putting uh, the, the, uh, 
the now famous movie My Dinner with Andre on the map for uh, a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have known it existed. And, uh, and they did that multiple times. And, and to me, that's the best part of the gig. So, uh, well, let, let's talk about like your career, how you started. You, he, people uh, listening to the podcast can't hear what I'm seeing in front of me, but it's a bunch of zines and film fan monthlies that you created. Like here's one from 1974. And obviously you've written a number of books, but how did it start for you? How, where did your love from cinema begin and what made you choose to write about it rather than to, say, write movies? Well, or... I, got, I got lucky because I fell in love with movies actually through television. I'm a child of the first TV generation, mm-hmm. okay? And when I was growing up in the 50s, you could look it up, the 50s. Uh, <laughs> 50s and into the- It was only a few the, decades into before the early I was around. 60s. TV was a living museum of movies. Uh, they're all, I lived in the New York area and where we had seven TV stations, which was a lot. Uh, this is long before cable. This, I have to explain yeah. this always. I sound like I come from the Chrome Magnet not, era. Not to me. I, gr- I, yeah. I remember when I got cable. But but there were, most cities had four stations, maybe five at most. New York being New York, uh, the populous area it was, we had seven mm-hmm. stations altogether, including the three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And those are the only networks there were. And there was no cable. There was no such thing as home video. Uh, the internet was a distant dream, all of that. The so, Simpsons was only on year 15. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so they had a lot of time to fill. And they filled a lot of it with movies. And they filled even more of it with old cartoons, old comedy shorts. And that's what I watched. That's what they showed as children's programming. So every day of my young life, every day I watched Laurel and Hardy. Every day of my young life, I watched The Little Rascals, originally known as Our Gang. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, The Three Stooges came along, and every day I watched them. I watched the, the Max Fleischer cartoons. I watched every cartoon library there was. And very significantly, I watched Walt Disney. Walt Disney, to me, was a person, not a corporation, because he hosted his own weekly television show, which was enormously popular. And he did it for 10 years, going on 11 years every week and he would take us behind the scenes and he would show us previews of his upcoming movies but also take us behind the scenes of animation how they made animated cartoons his own history how they happened to make the first successful sound cartoon steamboat willie how they developed color for the first time in a silly symphony short called flowers and trees Uh, what it took to make a feature-length animated cartoon like his snow white and the seven dwarfs well i was just mesmerized by all this and being a curious kid and a, and a reader, not an outdoor kid, <laughs> uh, I would go to my local library, which was just a few blocks away in my hometown in Teaneck, New Jersey, and I would look for books about Walt Disney, about uh, Laurel and Hardy, about Charlie Chaplin. There weren't many, but the few there were, I devoured. And then I developed a great love of, of writing. I, I needed to express myself. At first, I thought I was going to be a cartoonist. I loved to draw. But I, I didn't develop that skill as well as I should have. So I turned to writing. And with a friend, we started publishing our own little journal, originally uh, in the fifth grade. Oh, wow. Uh, we had a circulation of three. We had an original copy and two carbon copies. I don't even know if people know what carbon paper is anymore, but it was before Xerox and photocopying was commonly available. So we had three copies. We passed it around to our classmates. And then we got a mimeograph machine, another antiquated device 
It allowed you to duplicate but, like, copies. You had your own mimeograph machine to make your copies? A cousin of my father's was in the printing business, and he gave us gave me a, a used mimeograph machine, mm-hmm. a foul invention, but it did the job. I still have ink on my fingernails, <laughs> I think, from working with it. Uh, and then eventually I found out there was a whole network of these so-called fanzines, amateur magazines. Today yeah. they'd all be websites, but in those days it was uh, tangible, physical. And I wrote to two of them. One was in Indiana, Pennsylvania. It was a magazine called The Eight Millimeter Collector. Oh, wow. For for people who collected movies on 8mm, not 8mm video, 8mm film. Oh, yeah. And you could buy movies. You could buy uh, at a local camera store. Remember camera stores? I do. And department stores. And then there was a mail order place called Blackhawk Films in Davenport, Iowa, that sold uh, uh, vintage movies. Charlie Chaplin, D.W. Griffith Films. Uh, They licensed the Laurel and Hardy Silent Library. And I would save up my money and buy those. Because in those days, in the baby boom era from which I come, every family had a home movie projector and a home movie camera. Uh, It was before the era of video. And so you took home movies of special occasions and uh, vacation trips and things like that. You needed a projector to show them. And that projector would also accommodate a collection as I started to build. Every birthday present, that's what I wanted. A new Buster Keaton short or a new Charlie Chaplin short. So were you mostly uh, fascinated with the classic, like the original yeah. silent movies? Yeah. And how old are you when you're when you're getting into those? 10, 11, 12, something like that. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, like, I feel like those movies, a lot of them hold up often a lot better than a movie from 10 years ago. It's true. It's true. Those films will live forever. Mm-hmm. And I, I, just, I just realized last year I, I had a kind of a, a moment of uh, a sobering moment where I realized that the, the Charlie Chaplin shorts that I love the most, that most people uh, still revere, are the 12 shorts he made in 1916 and 17 for the Mutual Film Company. And they're called his Golden Dozen. Mm-hmm. It's classic titles like The Immigrant and Easy Street and um, The Adventurer and The Cure. All of them great. All of them great. They're now 100 years old, or a little yeah. more than 100 years old. Well, when I discovered them, it was 50 years ago. They were only 50 years old. <laughs> so I'm, as I say, I, I have to come to terms with that. Uh, but gosh, they're 100 years old. But they're just as great as ever. And you could put them on a screen for kids right now and not have to explain anything. You wouldn't have, I mean, you'd have to maybe have a kid with just the patience to watch the first few minutes. Yeah. And then they'd be drawn in. And you could show it to somebody in any language because there's right. no sound. They, they, they transcend language. You, I think you might have a, a strong opinion about this, but I, I think about this a lot, maybe more than I should, which is, you know, culture, especially now, we're constantly creating all this media. Like you go on YouTube and there's YouTubers or whatever, movies, right. television, blah, blah, blah. What ends up being the thing that lives on? What ends up being the like 500 years from now, are we are our children and, and, and historians or just people looking for entertainment going to watch Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and, you know, Har- Harold Lloyd shorts? Like what's the stuff? I hope so. Like what's the what is what is it well, about something that makes it transcend its own time? Okay. Well, the, well, first off, that's the definition of the word classic, uh, which is why I hate it when people call something an instant classic. That's an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can predict that it's going to be a classic. That's not improper, but a classic by definition is something that has stood the test of time. So Shakespeare's plays are classic. Of course, Mark Twain's writings are classic. 
uh, any uh, Beethoven symphonies are classic. But you figure there had to have been like other writers as good as Mark Twain in Mark Twain's time writing stuff that was just as pithy and hilarious. And we've never heard of that person. Well, that's possible. That's a very optimistic point of view. Uh, but <laughs> no you one's may ever well called be, me an optimist. You may well be right. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and there, there are other humorists, certainly uh, from the uh, 20th century, who are somewhat forgotten today that I love. Uh, I'm not the only one. Robert Benchley is one of my heroes, mm-hmm. and James Thurber. And when I was in elementary school, we studied them. We used to have a section of our English uh, class in the curriculum that w- where we'd study humor humorous writing and that's where I discovered those guys and uh, and fell in love with them and years later uh, I mean many years later I got to meet John Stewart and he had just published a book of really brilliant essays it's not it was stand-up material mm-hmm. it was written they were meant to be written essays pre daily show or this is when he just was in the pre daily show. show okay and the book was called Naked Pictures of Famous People. Oh, yeah, I know about, I know about that book. It's I don't a have a wonderful it. Yeah. book. And I asked him who his heroes were. And he said, oh, so many. And he started naming all the great humor columnists of uh, recent times, uh, Dave Barry, Art Buckwald, people like that. And then he said, Robert Benchley. I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> because it meant that he'd read him too. And I show the short subjects that Robert Benchley made in the late 20s and into the 30s to my class at USC. And I tell that story not because they're necessarily John Stewart fans, but just that it's proof that there is a continuum. Yeah. Just as the people at Pixar look to Walt Disney's template for what they do and how they build the story foundation of one of their feature films. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes throw out a lot of work they've done because if, if they feel it isn't working, if it isn't coming together. Lee Unkrich, who just directed and co-wrote uh, Coco, and won an Oscar for it, came to my class at USC and said he threw out a, an entire year's work on that film. Oof. Because he found that he was going up a blind alley. He wasn't approaching the story the way it needed to be approached. Can you imagine throwing away a year's work? Uh, but he did. I can imagine accidentally deleting a year's work. That's Yes, that's more tangible. Yes. But it says a lot about Pixar that they allowed him to. Yeah, yeah. And that he knows... He has the ability to do that with their approval. They would say to him, if it's not working, go back to square one, start again, as Walt Disney did. Walt Disney threw out six months' work on Pinocchio because it wasn't working. I wonder, like, if we were to look at it today, I wonder if any of the artifacts of that still exist and if it was, if, if there would be any way to look at it and if we'd go, eh, it was fine. What was he thinking? So, well, probably, probably it was fine, but it may not have been fine in the, con- in the larger context of the story they were trying to tell. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's just, I, 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 I've done a bunch of work for Disney and I love looking through, like sometimes I've had to look through their well, archives. Well, their archives are, are extraordinary. Yeah. There's no just, other studio quite like them yeah. when it comes to that. Yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, exactly. The whole process that Disney would have. Anyway, so uh, to go back a, a three quarters of a turn, I grew up watching Walt Disney, mm-hmm. hypnotized, memor- mesmerized by the, uh, the things he would show on his program. And... It made me a Disney file, P-H-I-L-E, a Disney file mm-hmm. for life. And I wound up writing a book called The Disney Films where I wrote about every one of his feature films and his career at large. And I wrote, wrote a later book on the history of animated cartoons, including a big chapter on him. And then I co-hosted and produced a series of uh, limited edition DVDs called The Walt Disney Treasures for nine years. We did 37 
Oh my God. Separate volumes. Yeah, yeah. And most recently, uh, for the past three years, I've been hosting Disney Evenings on Turner Classic Movies. So Disney has been and continues to be a big part of my life. And it started in childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm so lucky to be able to, to say that and to still have that love very much alive in, in me. Well, in the story that you're talking about uh, with your interest in that growing and going out and finding books and, and all this stuff sounds virtually identical to every filmmaker that we've that we've talked to where it's like you found something kind of cool in, yeah. in childhood and if you had zigged instead of zagged you might have been writing Disney movies instead of instead of you know writing about them and and enhancing them the way that you do but uh, so so t- take me down the road a little bit of like how you went from that to sort of being you know one of, one of the celebrity film critics well, is that is that a category? It really is. <laughs> when I was a kid, it was like it was Siskel and Ebert, it was you, it was Rex Reed, it was Gene yep. Shalit. Yep. You know, uh, probably Gene Shalit helped get me my job mm-hmm. on Entertainment Tonight. I'll, I'll get to that. So, I never wanted to be a film critic. I never aspired to that. What interested me was film history. Mm-hmm. And when I started publishing my fanzine, it went through several permutations. And by the time I was about thirteen. I was really hooked now on movie history, especially silent film history. By the time you're 15, I'm assuming you had a readership that had gone beyond the three original. Yes. Like, like yes. were you sending it out? Well, like- I was writing for two of the fanzines that I'd read about. The one from Indiana, Pennsylvania called The Eight Millimeter Collector, mm-hmm. and one in Vancouver, Canada called Film Fan Monthly. I became a contributor to both of those magazines when I was 13. Wow. I got to see my name in print in someone else's journal than my own, which was great. Very exciting. There was no money. This was all labor of love for that's everybody. That's still awesome. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's... It was awesome to me. Yeah. And after two years of doing that, Daryl Davey, the fellow who had created Film Fan Monthly, who was only 21 when he contacted me and told me this, he said, I'm making a living now. I've got a full-time job. I don't have time to keep up this magazine. Would you like to take it over? Mine had still been coming out on a mimeograph machine. <laughs> we, we had sort of built a list of about 100 readers... He had 400 readers. Wow. And he was professionally printed, could use photographs and everything. It's like, wow, that's for me. So I did, I took over his magazine. Well, that was in the 10th grade. That was the end of interest in schoolwork. Uh It was was, was over, the curtain rang down. Luckily I could coast just well enough to pass, uh, you know, some of my courses and didn't get kicked out of school, but all I thought about was this magazine. Uh, and it also meant licking stamps, stuffing envelopes, schlepping to the post office, yeah, and writing most of it at first, and then I started getting contributions from people who, just like me, wanted a place, wanted an outlet to write about things that interested them from film history. So I did it for nine years, every month for nine years. Did you what, go to college? Did you? Did you? I did. Yeah. Well, what happened was when I was in the twelfth grade, when I was in my senior year of high school in suburban New Jersey, just outside New York, twenty minutes to Manhattan, a teacher stopped me in the hallway one day. A teacher I didn't have, but who I knew was an English teacher. She said, "I really like what you've been doing, and I have a friend who's an editor at Signet Books in New York. Here's his number. Call him and go see him after school one day. I think the two of you would really hit it off." Okay, why not? I didn't know what this would lead to in my imagination. I dreamt that it would lead to someday me writing a book for him. I went to see him and I brought a stack of my little magazines and we were breaking the ice, talking in his office. And he said, what, what do you have there? I said, well, this is a magazine I put out. He said, oh, I love your magazine. 
I don't know how he had seen it. Uh, he, he might have subscribed when he was with another publisher, and that's why I didn't put two and two together. Or maybe the school teacher had given him copies. But either way, it really did break the ice. He said, do you know this book that's called Movies on TV? I said, sure, I use it every single day. It was the only thing of its kind. It was a paperback book with capsule reviews of movies that were shown on local television. And in those days, local television stations, as I say, were a, a home for movies of all types, all ages. And they showed them round the clock. He they, said, they were just doing it to fill time. To fill they, time, They didn't right. have original programming. So uh, it was before infomercials. It was before <laughs> any of that. So he said, you know this book? I said, yeah, I know it really well. He said, well, do you like it? I said, as far as it goes. He said, well, what would you do differently? I said, well, he only lists like two cast names. I want a bigger cast list than that. He doesn't list the director. I'd want to put in the director. He doesn't give the running time. And some of these local stations chop the movies mercilessly to fit a 90-minute time slot. Oh, yes. Uh, so I want the original running time. Also, if it's in color or black and white, which back in the late 60s was more of a more relevant than today when virtually everything is in color. I rattled off all these things, and he said, how'd you like to do it? I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm looking for somebody to do a rival book. You want to do it? I said, yeah, I guess so. I mean, how many, movie, how many movies are you talking about writing capsule reviews for? Well, it turned out it was 8,000. Oh, my God. I was... 17 years old <laughs> and he said so what are you going to do now after we shook hands going to go to the contract department and draw up a legal agreement i said uh well i've been accepted at nyu i'm going to school this fall he said why i just gave you a job i said well because it's what i'm supposed to do i was a very straight arrow square yeah. kind of kind of kid it's like well you know i know i have this plum job here but I'm supposed to go to college. So I did. And at the time, NYU did not have an undergraduate film study program. Wait, so did you write the book while you were going to school? Uh-huh. Actually, I finished most of it before. <laughs> he eight, said... 8,000 eight, eight, eight capsule reviews? Well, my, my, my editor, who became a friend, said, you're going to have to hire people to help you do this. Yeah. So just try to watch, just try to make sure you end up with some of the money yourself. <laughs> It was good advice that I didn't entirely succeed at following. But yeah. I hired people to help me. And then I found out the real key to doing a reference book of any kind, have other people proofread it, and then have proofreaders proofread the proofreaders. Mm -hmm. It has to be scrupulously edited. And uh, that was the crucial part of the, the, the process. The book came out when I was 18 and a, a freshman at NYU. And it was, I didn't know it would take a, I, I, all I saw were its shortcomings. As soon as it became a book, every error or every bad phrase, of, turn of mm -hmm. phrase, stood out like neon on the page to me. So I had mixed feelings about it. And it was, it was five years before they called me to do a second edition. Mm -hmm. And then four years before they called me to do a third one. But then, then they said, well, we're going to keep doing this on a regular basis. I did it for 45 years. <laughs> 45 years. <laughs> How could I have dreamt when I was 17 years old that exactly. this would become, you know. You're a college freshman with yeah. a book in publication. Yeah. That's amazing. So, so what I was, so what I did at NYU, I was very lucky. I, I became a journalism major and 
everything was taught by working journalists in the city, in New York City. Mm-hmm. And they let me cherry pick film courses for, for credit, not just auditing. What was the film program like? What, what year are we talking about? Well, I was there from 68 to 72. So this is I like- I came just a little bit too late to have Martin Scorsese as my teacher. <laughs> I have a good friend I was about who to did, say. <laughs> who, who wrote a wonderful article about his experiences uh, with Scorsese at NYU. But it's like you're you're sort of right, you're there at, uh, around the same time as all the film school brats. I know a lot of them were in California. Most but of them like were on the West Coast. Coppola and Spielberg and all those people who, yeah. who uh, John Milius, all those people who right. sort of exploded into film in the yep. 70s. And but so, I, was, I was there as, as a witness. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to see Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate and just being, you know, blown away. What is this? I remember going, speaking of Mr. Scorsese, I, I remember seeing Woodstock in a first run engagement in uh, Manhattan theater and hearing the crowd sounds behind me with surround sound, mm-hmm. multi-channel sound. Uh, wow. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget those experiences. No, that's like a magical time to be watching movies like the, you know, like we still talk about sort of the, I think we're going to talk about the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and kind of the independent wave in a similar uh Well, and now, deal. now, of course, people refer to the, early 70s, the first half of the 70s, as the silver age of American cinema. And it was. And I got on that Robert Altman bandwagon pretty early, and I became an Altman camp follower. I couldn't wait for each new movie to come. What was was your gateway drug to Robert Altman? MASH, like a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. I was just awestruck. Though I will say the first time I saw McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I couldn't decipher a lot of the soundtrack. (laughs) <laughs> I had to see it a second time. So at NYU, I joined the staff of the local, the local, the uh, the school paper. We had a very professional daily newspaper, which came out four days a week. And I became the film reviewer, and it's the first time I ever wrote movie reviews for a publication. Outside of the book that you wrote when you were yeah, 17. Exactly, yeah, exactly, right, okay. right. Well, those were very capsule, of course. <laughs> those were very pithy reviews. Still. <laughs> It was a great experience being on that paper staff, and uh, I cut a lot of classes to hang out at the newspaper. <laughs> and uh, any legends of pub- publishing who were uh, who who were in the newspaper there at the time with you? Uh, well, one of my colleagues, one of my classmates, went on to become a, a top byline uh, journalist for both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Nathan Kleinfeld, mm-hmm. Sonny Kleinfeld, as we knew him then, uh, and other people had good good careers mm-hmm. out of there. Down the hall at the radio station, the NYU closed circuit radio station, which could only be heard in the dorms. <laughs> we used to joke that at any moment, there were more people in the studio than there were listening to the station. <laughs> but nevertheless, one of the people on staff there was Martin Brest. Oh, wow. You know, So uh, I didn't know him then, but he was there at the same time. And my friend, I met a, a lifelong friend in John Davison, who at the time was doing he was showing films as what they used to call entracts between the uh, the musical performers at Fillmore East. Uh, they're in the East Village, right near NYU. He sometimes borrows some of my 16 millimeter prints, and he gave me some of his. We used to trade so, and exchange. So you moved up from super from eight. Yes, yes, I made the big leap to 16 millimeter, <laughs> which was a big leap. And John became part of this continuing sort of underground railway. <laughs> <laughs> from NYU to the Roger Corman 
office on Sunset Boulevard in New World Pictures. Nice. Uh, the first one to go was Scorsese, who made Boxcar Bertha for, for Corman. And then when Roger wanted him to make another one, and he, he was ready to move on, he recommended Jonathan Kaplan, who came out. And then Jonathan recommended my friend John Davison, who came out, became kind of the office manager for Roger. And he recommended his friend Joe Dante, who became the trailer editor at New World Pictures. And then they brought their friend Alan Arkish out and Louis Teague. All these guys came in a, in a row and got their uh, baptism of fire at New World Pictures. <laughs> and then they made uh, Rock and Roll High School for Corman. And they made, uh, on a bet, John Davison made a bet with Corman that he could make a feature film in one week for 50 grand using stock footage from other New World Pictures. And it was called Hollywood Boulevard. I, I heard I heard uh, Joe Dante talk about this on yes. a podcast recently. And uh, and they did it. They did it. They pulled it off. <laughs> so as you're as you're going through this stuff, as you're as you're coming up, you, you've got your book of, of the capsule reviews. You're starting to write re- reviews uh, for NYU. When do you start becoming aware of cinematography and the art of cinematography, or was it when you were in, in the fifth grade? Well, I, mean, I was I was learning all the time. I was soaking up history and the aesthetics and the art of uh, filmmaking on a very low level, I guess you would say. <laughs> I was not an intellectual and I you know, didn't study it in a very uh, profound way. But, but things started to sink in. And here is a story I should be embarrassed to tell, but I'm not. <laughs> I haven't gotten my foot in the door with the publishing house, with my movie guide, I then pitched another idea that they bought that became a book called Movie Comedy Teams. Great fun to write about Laurel and Hardy and the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges and all these great teams. And then summer was coming up and I wanted another book project. And I pitched several ideas. There was a new editor there by now. And she said, no, none of these really do it, but we're interested in a book on cameramen. I said, well, I don't know anything about cameramen. And uh, so I had nothing to offer. But a couple of weeks went by and I said, who am I to turn down an offer from a publisher? This is a major publishing house, yeah, New American Library, which th- then was swallowed up by Penguin. So I did, a little, I did a little reading and I went to my mentor, William K. Everson, one of the foremost film uh, professors, authors, and historians uh, who was a New Yorker, British-born man now living in New York. And I asked his advice. He said, well, he said, it's easy. He says, go out to L.A. and visit the ASC and go to their clubhouse because all the old-timers hang around there and they all have great stories to tell. Well, the one book I'd been reading was written by, co-written by Arthur C. Miller, Mm -hmm. a legendary name in cinematography. So I called him on the phone. He was then the president of the ASC. He had three Academy Awards under his belt. He was pretty much retired by then. What did he win the uh, Oscar for? How Green Was My Valley. Which beat Citizen Kane. Yes, it I did. Always, I always bring that up. Uh, I should remember, I think I think uh, Anne and the King of Siam, all, the, all Fox movies, mm-hmm. and Song of Bernadette, may have, those may have been the three. But he started, he worked on The Perils of Pauline, the silent film serial. In Fort Lee, New Jersey. Yeah. An amazing career. He said, come on out. 
Happy to see you. I'll introduce you to some of the other fellows. So I had one locked in. I had Arthur Miller for sure. And a friend of mine out here, a pen pal of mine, sit, was friendly with uh, the wife of Hal Moore, M-O-H-R, Hal Moore, another Oscar-winning, legendary, pioneering cameraman. So I had two for sure. And I came out and who was indeed sitting around the ASC clubhouse, which has now been expanded and, you know, renovated and all that, but was still- Was it in the same place? place? Yeah, in Orange, on Orange Drive. Oh, wow. Yep. It was a silent actor, silent movie actor's house, Conway Turrell, a silent film actor. It was his residence originally. Did he like donate it to the ASC? Or no, I think- it, They yeah, just bought it up? They bought it at some juncture there. Uh-huh. Sitting around was Hal Rawson, mm-hmm. the man who shot, oh, the Wizard of Oz, <laughs> Singing in the Rain. Never heard of those movies. Also started in the silent film era. Arthur Miller, God bless him, got on the phone and called Lucian Ballard and Conrad Hall and set me up with both of them. Was Conrad Hall already kind of a big deal at that time? Yes. He must have been young. He must have been pretty. Well, Conrad Hall paid his dues. In fact, he told me the story, which was that he and two pals of his did a lot of nature photography, uh, some of it for Disney, for Disney's True Life Adventure films. Uh, I think I knew that. But he he wasn't a member of the union yet. And the union was very, very strict back then. And so when he, even though he had oodles of experience behind a camera and exposed a lot of film, he had to start from the bottom. Uh, I don't know if he started as a loader or a, oh, you know, man. an assistant, but on a TV series. And he had to work his way up and did because he was so good. And I think he was also, he was also very, you know, a very likable guy. And uh, so yeah, by the time I talked to him, he, he, he had just shot In Cold Blood, I think. Oh, okay. When I, when I had spoken to him, or recently shot In Cold Blood. So yeah, he was, he was now on the A-list, but he took but him time it seems to like, get there. It seems like he must have been kind of young to be on the A-list at that he point. He was a young veteran. Yeah. I guess you'd say. Like he couldn't have been more than in his 30s at that point, I'm assuming. No, I think maybe a little, little more than that. Really? No, I was actually interested when I was, uh, you know, doing the research about about your book to see that Conrad Hall was in a list with all of these like serious old timers because, you know, Conrad Hall passed away probably what ten years ago. Yeah, I think the last movie yeah. of his that I saw was Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition, which was exquisite. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, as I say, he had to go back to square one to yeah. become a legitimate, you know. Uh, Union. I'm just imagining, carrying. like, you know, we're on the set of Bonanza, and someone's like, "Hey, Conrad Hall, go get me some coffee." <laughs> and then Lucian Ballard. That was a trip because he lived out in Malibu. I'd I, I'd only been out here once before. I'd never been to Malibu, and uh, a friend drove me out there. I was 19 or 20 years old, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and anyway, I got this two-week crash course in cinematography and in the history of cinematography, which was the history of American filmmaking. So, like, how much does this blow your mind at this point? Because you've been all ri- of it. You've been writing about all film of it. since you were like what, fifteen? Yeah, you, you've been writing 13. about film. Thir- thirteen. You've been writing about film. So now you're in your early twenties, and you and you go meet with all of these amazing yep. legendary cinematographers. How does your perspective on filmmaking shift when you understand what these people brought to the a process? A whole lot. A whole lot. As I say, it was a crash course. It was truly eye-opening, in the no pun intended. Mm-hmm. But it really was, because I I had been performance oriented, you know. I, I fell in love with Laurel and Hardy, and you know, as I say, and Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Charlie Chaplin is very cinematographically driven. His stuff is, and and Buster Keaton as yeah. well. 
of course the cinematography but I was you know but I was just enjoying the films yeah of course enjoying their their work well I think that's how we all start watching movies right and uh, the first director I ever encountered I guess it was in my teens who came to New York for a retrospective was Ruben Mamoulian a fascinating man who was primarily a theater director who also made some pretty notable movies he did a very striking early talkie called Applause, which is a creaky movie dramatically, but a very advanced movie technologically. Uh, he, had, uh, he wanted to make naturalistic use of sound when sound was brand new and there were nothing but people saying, no, you can't do that. Yeah. He did. He made the first full three-color technicolor feature, Becky Sharp. He made the early... 1930s version of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Frederick March, which is very sophisticated technologically again uh, and dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Well. Uh, and he was a raconteur. He was a wonderful storyteller. And he was there for a week or 10 days accompanying all these screenings. And I went to him as many as I could. And that was the first time I started thinking seriously about who was behind the camera. Yeah, yeah. He really opened that door for me. And then having the opportunity to meet these, these men that I interviewed invented motion pictures, you might say, because a lot of things they needed to do or wanted to do, they had to create. They had to literally devise for themselves. Uh, and uh, there were no textbooks to consult. In many cases, there were no senior statesmen, you know, uh, or mentors, yeah. you know, to turn to. Yeah, how do you go to someone and ask how to shoot the Wizard of Oz? Yeah. Like, you're inventing, you're writing the textbook. That's right. Of course, one of my challenges was I didn't even know in some cases what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. uh, if I was doing this today, I, I, think I would probably ask better questions and more follow-up questions. And some of the people I interviewed were more articulate than others, as I learned and I learn this all the time. I teach a class at, at USC where I have filmmaker guests every week, mm -hmm. all kinds, directors, writers, producers, cameramen, cinematographers now, yeah. DPs, uh, costume designers, production designers, composers, uh, the whole gamut. And so I learn something every week. I learn something all the time at this class, and uh, which is what makes it stimulating to me. Each phase, each facet of film production has its own art you know it's <laughs> of it's, course it's yeah. all, it, it has aesthetics and nuts and bolts yes it has both I foolishly thought of some of these people as technicians and very quickly was disabused of that thought because if uh, my very first guest 20 years ago when I began this class was a sound mixer who had made Jackie Brown with Quentin Tarantino oh wow and I thought and, and Quentin and all the other principals were in London for the premiere. So the only guest we could get was the sound mixer. And I said somewhat condescendingly to the fellow who booked the class, the sound mixer? We have Quentin Tarantino's first film in five years, and this is who we're getting, the sound mixer? <laughs> but then I watched the film again that night with my class and listened more attentively. Yeah, yeah. Well, he shot a lot of it at the Del Amo Mall. How do you, how do you get natural sound in a noisy place without looping? It didn't sound like it was looped. There's the, uh, somebody gets, uh, gets whacked inside a panel truck. How do you create that sound? I started thinking about all these things. Well, this, the sound this, was, mixer, this is the post-production sound mixer or the on-set sound mixer? Like the person who was Both. 
Oh, wow. I believe I believe he fulfilled. I believe in this case he fulfilled both Whoa. functions. If I I may be mistaken, it's a, M- Michael Minkler is his name. Turns out he's now a three-time Academy Award winner. Mm-hmm. He was two at the time I met him, and <laughs> and a uh, third-generation sound man in Hollywood. Whoa, and a really nice guy, a really good guy, and very very articulate about his work. I've had other guests who are great at what they do, but they can't talk about it. Well, that's no crime. Getting good interviewing Robert De Niro is almost impossible too, and I've talked to him many times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it, what, it isn't enough to be one of the greatest actors on the planet? No, that's enough. The fact that you're not a great interview is no crime. Yeah, yeah. You know. But I, so I learned, I kept learning, and I still learn. I still learn all the time, which is why I'm still uh, enthusiastic about it. So, like, what were like some of the mind-blowing revelations when you were writing uh, this book? Is this book still in print, or, pe- or can people still get you it? You know, I think it. Well, yeah. Nowadays, uh, in the world of online book selling, you can get anything. Oh, that's true. You just it go originally on came out as behind the camera, and that book is almost impossible to find. It was a, tra- a, a mass market paperback. But the, uh, the, the nicer, slicker edition is called "The Art of the Cinematographer." And I think it's it may still be in print, but it certainly is available. It's interviews with those five people: Arthur Miller. Hal Moore, Hal Rawson, Lucian Ballard, and Conrad Hall. And then a lengthy introduction about the history of American film in a kind of a, you know, a capsulized form from the point of view of the, the, the cameraman, as they used to call them. So when, when we're talking to cinematographers, I always ask them, when you're reading a script, what first occurs to you, the lighting or the composition? Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to think for days how to, how to spin this around to ask you, but what is the thing when you see a movie and you, and you remember it for the cinematography, what do you remember it for? What, what about the cinematography sticks with you? Well, being a layman, it can be tricky mm-hmm. because is it really the cinematography I'm, I'm admiring or the beautiful scenery where the film was shot? Sure. Uh, just like costume designers get attention for the most elaborate you know, uh, you know, period pictures, whereas just as much work goes into a contemporary movie. Yeah, yeah. Where the costumes are not showy. Uh, and so it is with cinematography. Roger, in, in that it's harder for you to figure out what part of it is the cinematographer's yeah, contribution. Yeah, exactly. And now that I know more about production design and I know more about you know editing and I know more about uh, the role the director plays in certain instances some of the some of the guys i interviewed said they work with very well known even famous directors who never looked through the lens mm-hmm. they just left that to their cameraman and they were as surprised as anybody <laughs> when they watched the daily well that's how it was back then because they there were no video taps and there were no monitors that's right so you'd have to literally and, and, and stick in fact, your head you up. didn't necessarily have a, uh, a reflex camera yeah but a lot of them, you know, were blissfully ignorant of the, the workings of, of, the, uh, of the camera. Whereas uh, Orson Welles, when he came out to make Citizen Kane and worked with the great Greg Toland, uh, not, not only learned from Toland, but also was an active participant with Toland yeah. in, you know, in s- establishing the look of that movie, as he was with Stanley Cortez on The Magnificent Ambersons. So... I guess it's still true today that there are some directors, although you see them with viewfinders, you know, around their (laughs) neck, you know, some of them are savvy about, you know, what lenses they want to use and uh, what kind of lighting scheme they 
they want to pursue for a particular film. And others lean more heavily on their DPs. Ron Howard came to my class one night with the film um, Frost Nixon, which mm-hmm. I think is a terrific movie. It's amazing. And especially since it was really a play, Peter Morgan wrote it as a play and then adapted his own screenplay and made it cinematic. It's a very cinematic movie. Yeah, it doesn't seem like an adapted play. Ron said, because he's he's been an actor his whole life, he's still performance driven. And he feels he needs to lean on his DP more than some other directors might to give him visual ideas Mm -hmm. and to stimulate his, his imagination about what to do in a given scene because he doesn't Im- immediately uh, see it that way, the way it uh, might be interpreted on the screen. I thought that was a very candid you know, admission on his part and very interesting. Well, but then, but then that's part of the, the that that's his whole his whole thing. I actually have had the opportunity to work for him mm-hmm. uh, when he was doing the Dark Tower, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things I did was work on the animatic team. So mm-hmm. we made an animatic of the version of the Dark Tower that he was going to do that nobody's ever seen before. Right. And he said that to us. He 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 basically said that he loved. To me, this was like one of those moments where you go, "That's what a good, <laughs> that's what a genius does." He said to all these storyboard artists and and myself, he said, "I like movies like like what Zemeckis does or Spielberg does, where there's like a really amazing shot that like someone stands up and you realize it was all about something else the whole time." And he's like, "But I'm terrible at coming up with those. So if you can help, kind of pitch those." And what I learned was he's actually really good at doing those. He's just giving everybody ownership mm-hmm. in a, in the in the most uh, benevolent, brilliant way that that he could. And, and I mean, like, I don't feel like you can do the quality of work that he's done for as long as he's done it without really having an eye for that stuff. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah he does work with different guys like Salvatore Totino, who shot a bunch of his movies. Who shot but, that one, I think. And then he did another Peter Morgan movie uh, called Rush that Anthony yeah. Dodd Mantle shot. Looks totally different, but it's still a Ron Howard movie. It, yeah. There's still something Ron Howardy about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As I say, I learn so much from talking to these people. And uh, the... I guess the real, the ultimate lesson is, is, is how collaborative this motion picture medium is. Mm-hmm. And you can talk all you want about the auteur theory, and there's some value to it, and there's some foundation for, for, for that, but it's collaborative. And while there has to be somebody in charge, somebody in the driver's seat, if the people around you are not in harmony with you, if they're not making the same movie you are, if, they're, if they don't understand the dramatic purpose of each scene, each sequence, uh, as well as the film in total, it's not going to be as good as it could be. Yeah. That's what I learned from Michael Minkler. He's not a technician. He's a creative contributor to the film. And if he's not, he shouldn't be on the film. Well, yeah. I mean, if they were simply technicians, then, you know, we wouldn't be giving them Oscars and we wouldn't be yeah. honoring them. And, you know... It, if you look at a at something shot by Conrad Hall or you look at something shot by Robert Richardson or Ellen Caress or any of yep. any of the really amazing named DPs, you can usually spot there's a I don't want to say it's a tell because, yeah. you know, like Roger Deakins for the longest time, I was like, so the same guy who shot Barton Fink shot the Shawshank Redemption. Like, I don't see it. But, but that's but that's the point. The point is that that he's so good. He adapts to the material. Yeah. He's there to serve the movie. And serve the director, and that—that's what most people will tell me, and tell anybody. Mm-hmm. They are there in service to the director, primarily, and and ultimately the the project they're working on. 
Well, but I do sometimes think about people like Robert Richardson, who has there's a look that he gets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it could be Snow Falling on Cedars. It could be Fast, Cheap and Out of Control. It could be JFK. They're all different movies by different directors. But there's some there's some kind of crossover in the look. Even when he when he started working for Tarantino, you know, I was like, how's that going to work? Because to me, they are both people with very specific looks. Yeah. And it, it it's a synthesis of their look in, in a sense. Like, I don't I feel like I would. I don't know that I would watch five seconds of Kill Bill or not. Uh, yeah, he shot Kill Bill, uh, and and be oh Robert Richardson shot that. But there's but when you when you know it, and maybe this is confirmation bias on my part. I'm like looking at it, and I'm like I'm seeing the kind of highlights. I'm seeing the way that he lights. There's a style. There's a specific style, and it's sort of like movie stars, where it's like you know Jack Nicholson is always Jack Nicholson, but he's always compelling to watch. Yeah. But then you know there are people like. Billy Crudup, who like sink into yeah. a role and you don't know. And, and in the golden age of Hollywood, which I cover in large part in this book, there was a house style at every studio. An MGM movie looked like an MGM movie and it didn't look like a Warner Brothers movie. When did we lose that? Like Disney is the only uh, studio that, that I feel like with has... The, with the collapse of the studio system in the 50s and the coming of television and the development of... Uh, widescreen mm-hmm. and uh, you know other processes and different colored processes as well. Almost everything got shook up in the 50s. I remember watching on 60 Minutes a couple of years ago, they had like some film footage right, right after the big earthquake at San Francisco. And it was like, this is our look into the life of what San Francisco was like before that. Well, assuming that the internet doesn't die and that all the data that's on the internet is still around, a thousand years from now, people will just be able to hear our most intimate thoughts and see everything they were doing. And and I kind of wonder like, okay, so then what parts of our culture, what become what becomes the Shakespeare of, of, of our time? Is it David Mamet or does David Mamet end up being just, you know, one other, one other person? Is it Star Wars? Very hard to predict. Yeah. Very hard to predict. Star Wars now has 40 years of history behind it. Uh, I mean, it's it's still very much alive, as we know. And they've announced 10,000 sequels to come mm. in a TV series, so it's going to be around for a long time. Yeah. So I don't think it's going to disappear anytime soon, not in our lifetime, certainly. Certainly not in our lifetime, but I do wonder, like, a thousand years from now, when someone's studying, I, I call this, I don't know if there's an actual... Uh, an actual discipline. I call it speculative anthropology. What are people <laughs> going to be talking about about today? If we only knew. Yeah. If we only knew. Films take on greater meaning sometimes with the passage of time, and others have the opposite yes. situation, where they become less significant uh, than they seemed at the moment. Yes. You know? I remember, because I had just started working at Entertainment Tonight uh, a short time before, when the Academy had to decide what was the best picture of 1982. Was it E.T. the Extraterrestrial or Gandhi? Yeah. They voted Gandhi. When was the last time you watched Gandhi? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a minute since I've seen Gandhi. Now, mind you, Gandhi's a good movie. Nothing wrong with Gandhi. Nothing wrong with it. Perfectly respectable biopic made yeah. by Sir Richard Attenborough. Actually, it was Lord Richard Attenborough by the time he passed. Was he a lord? Uh-huh. Well, well he, wasn't, he wasn't a lord when he made Gandhi, though. No. So it was made by Sir, who would one day be Lord Richard, Richard right. Attenborough. Who, of course, ended up working with Spielberg on Jurassic Park. <laughs> so that's kind of a funny... And everyone loved him. He, he was much admired and much loved yeah. as an actor and, and a filmmaker. So it's a perfectly good movie with a very fine performance by a man we didn't know then named Ben Kingsley. <laughs> uh, made him a, a world, you know, yeah. world-class actor and uh, a movie star. But then there's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. 
Yeah, which, that was which endures a bit. Considered the, the the popcorn movie as mm-hmm. opposed to the important movie, and in those days and for many years before and since, the Academy always gave the Best Picture award to the important movie with a capital I. Yeah. If you look back at the fifties, which is now sixty years ago, I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> the films that we turn to from the 50s most, the films that film buffs and film scholars alike discuss, seek out, respect the most are the genre films, uh, The Searchers. Yeah. Searchers was not an Oscar movie. The Sam Fuller movies, the Bud Bedecker movies, the Anthony Mann westerns, all those films by those highly individualistic directors who put their stamp on everything they did, those are the ones that we that we really cling to and love. Whereas the so-called important movies of the 50s, the ones that won the Oscars and a lot of the acclaim, have often fallen by the wayside or seem maybe a little pretentious or, or, or full of themselves. Well and, well, and you brought up How Green Was My Valley, and mm-hmm. I always like to, you know, people assume that Citizen Kane was like, you know, the biggest award-winning movie of all time, and, you know, Orson Welles never won an Oscar. And Although uh, the screenplay did. Yeah. Oh, so I'm, I stand corrected on that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but How Green Was My Valley, no, I mean, it's a movie that's... It's a beautiful movie. Yeah. It's, don't, don't go there. I'm not, I'm not saying anything <laughs> bad about How Green Was My Valley. I'm just saying it's, it's a movie that's probably less remembered than Citizen that's, Kane. That's certainly true. So this dovetails uh, perfectly into a question that we had from uh, one of our listeners, a guy named David Wexler, and he said, and I quote, I feel like many films that are being released today are forgettable and don't have longevity as compared to the recognizable classics, and he names Godfather, Blade Runner, Citizen Kane, basically classics from the AFI 100. Why is that? Do you think watching movies on a smartphone, tablets, and new distribution models have any responsibility? Responsibility for 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 what? For I, I think what he's saying is is the stuff that we're enjoying watching on our on our on our stupid devices uh, is that stuff dumbing is that down. Detrimental in some way. It's detrimental to the art. That's for sure. Not necessarily to the storytelling. Because you mean to the art? Like in other words, if you're watching 2001: A Space Odyssey on an iPhone five, you're not really getting to see. You're not two, really getting to see it properly. Yeah. I say that if you've already seen 2001 on a big screen, preferably a very big screen, (laughs) you can revisit it on your device because you've experienced it fully. Yes. And now you're just reminding yourself of it and you're enjoying the the process of revisiting. That's, I'll, I'll go that far and say that's okay. Yeah. Lawrence of Arabia whatever you want to name. Yeah, I just don't okay. think that a David Lean has done is done justice by even an iPad, you know, six no. inches away from your face. No. And I'm reminded of it over and over and over again. Because even I lull myself sometimes into believing that uh, it's okay. I don't watch anything on an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but sometimes I do, I'll watch an older movie on, uh, we now have an 80-inch screen. My wife insisted on getting an 80 inch screen when we moved to a new house a few years ago. And she was right. <laughs> it's great. Uh, cost a lot, but it was great. It's paid us back many times over. But there's still something different about seeing it really larger than life and being in a darkened theater with a, maybe a simpatico audience. Uh, uh, that's a utopian situation these days, but it does happen. I don't, I don't blame the devices for anything. 
and I don't blame the streaming services for anything. I, I don't hold them accountable for anything at all. Why don't we have more films that seem timeless or seem uh, as if they're destined to endure? This has always been a, a, a battle between art and commerce. Mm-hmm. It's show business. Somebody has to write a check to pay for these movies. And I've always, people say to me at the end of every year, it was a pretty good year, wasn't it? I'll say, no, it was a pretty good month. They <laughs> save up all the good movies for like November and December, or it starts Labor Day now around the, yeah. the Telluride Film Festival, the Toronto Film Festival, the Venice Film Festival. Why are they sitting on the other stuff? You know, but last year, Get Out came out in February. Yeah, I think that's a genuinely great movie. Damn near won the Best Picture Oscar, won Best Screenplay. That's right, and provocative, original, had a point of view, has something to say. Does it in the cloak of a genre movie, a horror movie, in the most ingenious possible way? Will that hold up? Will that be something we'll be watching? People will be watching in ten years, twenty years, fifty years. I don't know. I think so, but maybe it will be eclipsed yeah. at some point. Maybe it'll be ripped off so much. <laughs> this is one of the things that happens. Someone comes along with something original, and it gets the impact of the original becomes diluted by all the pretenders. Remember all the Tarantino wannabes who came along? Oh, my God, I do, yes. Those, that was a grisly era, <laughs> having to sit through all of those I went, films. I went to film school during the Tarantino years, mm-hmm. so you got to see the mainstream films, but I got to see the film students who thought that they were Tarantino yeah. making you know, Tarantino-esque uh, student films yeah, in my I, class, I, I, and then I, I had to look them in the eye and explain to them how much I loved their film. <laughs> I kind of have another question, too, with that. Um, Our producer, Alana, has a question for you. She's sitting right here. Do you feel like movies like Star Wars, for example, is diluted, though, the impact of it, by having so many sequels? And, for instance, all the superhero movies having a gazillion sequels and spinoffs and et cetera. Well, there's no rule. There's no rule of thumb here. I liked the last Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. I thought it was very entertaining. I thought there was too much of it, enough for three movies, maybe. Mm-hmm. But... I was surprised at how much I really enjoyed it. So if the films maintain that standard of quality, then I have no problem, I have no issue. But yes, I've been having comic book hero fatigue, superhero fatigue, and I've also been having uh, animation fatigue. You know, I used to see every animated movie that came out because there weren't many of them, and they were an event. Disney owned that category, you know, for decades. Or the occasional Don feature. Bluth or whatever. Yeah, but it was occasional. Mm-hmm. And then when Jeffrey Katzenberg broke off and created DreamWorks Animation, it was another major supplier, and Sony got into the business, and then other people acquired the skill set to both here and abroad, overseas, you know, to be able to make, you know, polished animated feature films. Well, and the technology to do it got cheaper. You know, once it was all happening inside mm-hmm. these very specific programs, all you had to do was be an amazing artist and storyteller and then learn a program. Right. But storytelling is the key. Exactly. That's, and, the, that's the part you can't just pick up on right. the weekend. So now uh, I, I don't see every one because I don't uh-huh. feel a need to see every single one. The nut job, you know, and all of that. I, I don't feel compelled 
Uh, I like to pick and choose what I'm going to see, what I'm going to spend my time on. And as I get older, I get choosier. So I don't, I don't, I don't see any negative with Star Wars if they stick to their yardstick of, of quality, that measurement of quality. And I hope they do. And I know that they know too. They're very smart people. Kathleen Kennedy, who's now running Lucasfilm, and all the people around her, they know there's a lot at stake here. Yeah. And so I think they're going to work very hard to make films that live up to the expectations of all these millions of fans. So I'm not too concerned about that. Do I wish there was more variety? Yeah, more original out there stuff. In, in Marketplace, I sure do. I absolutely do. It was very telling that last summer a number of sequels died, not at the hands of critics, but from the ca- the cash paying customers. They didn't want to see them. Which ones are you talking about? There were several notable flops. Well, uh, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles oh, yeah. died. Didn't the new uh, Transformers underperform in yeah, America? Yeah. Like I think it did yeah. well overseas. Yeah. But there were several notable. Well, I do. Yeah. I do sort of wonder about that. Uh, sort of what Alana's saying, because like years after, one of my earliest movie-going memories uh, was going to see the original Star Wars in the theater with my mm-hmm. father. And then, you know, of course, like you're you're caught up in it because it's so new and fresh. And then, you know, when I was a teenager watching it again and being like, oh, it feels cliche now, like having that realization. And it's because everybody had ripped it off. Yeah. Like it had been ripped off every way that it could possibly be ripped off. That's right. And with the superhero movies and the Star Wars movies, basically, you know, Disney owning Marvel and Star Wars. Now, it's almost like the most expensive TV series where you only get one new episode a year. But, well, actually, in the case of the superhero movies, you might get five new episodes a year. There might be five movies within the Avengers universe that come out every year, and they have to maintain a continuity, and they have to tell their own story, and they also have to reestablish well, that's why. But that's why Marvel is so smart. And Kevin Feige, who happens to be a graduate of USC Cinema, mm. where I teach, and a very loyal and generous <laughs> alum who brings the films to my class. Oh, wow. Which is just great. Often brings the director or writers with him. He's a very, very smart guy because he knows they need an infusion of fresh ideas. And that's why he reaches out to unlikely or seemingly unlikely writers and directors to work on them. Yeah, yeah. As he did with Taika Waititi for Thor, uh, with the Russo brothers, Captain America. Uh, you know, that's so smart because if, if they start feeling cookie cutter, they're going to die. No, they don't. And, you know, just when they start to, Deadpool will come out and you'll be like, what What the hell is this? Yeah. Like, you know, it's a completely different take. Mm-hmm. So I know, that, I know that your time is a little bit limited. I, I want to uh, steer us a little bit back to specifically talking about cinematography for a couple other questions. Uh, the main one is, in the time that you've been watching movies and paying very close attention to movies and kind of being one of our, our chroniclers of movies... What are the trends in cinematography that you've seen go away that you wish could come back? And what are some of the innovations that you've seen come in that you're that that like what when you see one that like really excites you when you see something visually that that you've never seen before? What are some of those? One of the things I admire is contemporary filmmakers who aren't afraid to use the classical style of composition and framing. Mm hmm. Uh, who don't feel they have to take the camera off the tripod just for the sake of doing it. It's considered bold now to do that. (laughs) It really is. But if that's what tells the story best, 
and focuses the audience's attention where it ought to be, then that's how you ought to do it. At the same time, Guillermo del Toro just made The Shape of Water in the style of Vincent Minnelli. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and Douglas Sirk, he, those are the two directors he cites as his, as his uh, uh, sources. And there's never a shot in the movie that isn't moving. There isn't one stationary shot in the film, apparently. Well, and that's how he's always worked. And, and, you know, he's one of those guys where he worked with the same cinematographer for a long time, Guillermo Navarro. And this one is Dan Loutzen, who he's worked yeah. with before. Yeah, he shot, he shot a few of his movies yes. now. But the thing about Del Toro that I have always admired is that he doesn't really cover scenes. He doesn't do, like, a master shot and over yeah. the shoulder, over the shoulder. He, he, like, one shot takes you in and another shot takes you out. And they might yeah. intercut a few times, but that ain't coverage in the, in the TV but it, set. But what's... What, so good about it in Shape of Water is it never calls attention to itself. Yeah. See, that's the that's the beauty and that's the art, is that he's doing that, but you're not aware of it unless yes. you're, you know, hypersensitive to the inner workings of you know motion pictures. You're, you're a cinematography buff. You would notice that. Yeah. Uh, but most people won't, and they shouldn't. They shouldn't. They should be caught up in the story and the characters and the incredible look of the movie as it creates this world, this, uh, you know, this environment, uh, uh, time and place. Uh, he succeeds in that. And yet it was very consciously set, set up a, a certain way, a specific way to have a, an emotional effect. So, so you're saying that, that it's, it's an exciting thing to you when you see modern filmmakers using those techniques from looking back into, into history yeah. and kind of modernizing. Because modernized. I'm, 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 tired of, I'm tired of shaky cam in particular. Okay. I have to say that. And I'm not sure there's always a reason for, for handheld camera work when I see it in films. Uh, it's just uh, almost a toss of a coin. Oh, let's just do this handheld. Yeah. Well, is it going to help your film? Is it going to help tell the story? Is it going to help draw the audience into the emotion of the piece and the performances from your actors? Then do that. But if it's not, why, you know, why? Why have you chosen this? Do you think also, on a similar subject, do you think that we've lost anything now that we're not projecting on celluloid in most theaters? Well, to be perfectly honest, I can't tell the difference. And if you can't tell the difference, then I'm going to say most people probably would have a very now, hard time. Now, if it's shot on film, and as many films still are, yeah. many major films still are, and uh, projected digitally, I really can't tell the difference. Chaz Ebert, Roger's widow, runs Ebert Fest in Champaign-Urbana every year in April. And a couple of years ago, they showed uh, Robert De Niro's directorial debut, A Bronx Tale. I remember it well. And Chaz Palminteri was there, the man who wrote it and co-stars in it. And they borrowed a 35-millimeter print from Scorsese's collection at the George Eastman house. Oh, wow. Now, we're so accustomed to not watching 35-millimeter these days that watching it, it was a pristine 35-millimeter print, but it doesn't have that razor sharpness that digital filmmaking does but it just takes a minute or two I find for your eyes to adjust just as when I show 16 millimeters still I show 16 millimeter shorts sometimes to my class in Norris theater uh, down at USC and it's not as it's not as sharp as 35 goodness knows 
and there's a little more grain. But you know what? Your eye adjusts. If the content grabs you, your eye adjusts. I find that always interesting. So that seems like a, a really great place for us to stop. Thank you so much for uh, coming on here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So before you go, where can people find you online or find information about you? You can find me in the corner of Selma and Vine most evenings, <laughs> just wandering back and forth. Just, uh, just give the man a donut. <laughs> He'll tell you everything about uh, The Wizard of Oz. I, uh, I am online. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at Leonard Malton. Uh, Instagram. And you have a podcast of your own. And I have a podcast that I do with my daughter, Jessie, called Malton on Movies for the Nerdist Network. We have a great time doing that. And I still write reviews and essays and journal entries at leonardmalton.com on the website. Is your film guide still, are you still updating no, the film guide? No, no. That has uh, passed into uh, history, I guess. It's still alive because it's still got 16,000 movie reviews in the most recent edition. What is still very much alive is my classic movie guide, Mm -hmm. which is films made before 1965, going back to the silent era. Leonard Malton's classic movie guide. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on, and everybody check out uh, Mr. Malton's podcast. So that was Leonard Malton. Leonard, that was so much fun. We hope you'll come back and do that again. Can I, can I honestly say, been a giant fan of, of uh, Leonard Malton since I was, I don't know, eight, nine years old, and I used to watch him on Entertainment Tonight, and I oh, thought yes. he was one of the most in, in, interesting, incisive critics, you know, and, and he's just a source of positivity all over uh, the film industry. Like, uh, the film world could not have a bigger cheerleader than Leonard Malton. Thanks, Leonard. You, you are the best, and I hope that your encyclopedic knowledge of film is uh, is shared with us once again. That would be, be wonderful. <laughs> we'll bring him back. Yeah. We'll just, you know, throw him in the back of my car and make, make him come here all the time. <laughs> or maybe he'll have us on his podcast. Who knows? Because, you know, uh, Leonard's got a podcast, too. You he can... should totally have us on. Yeah, he should. He should. It's about time that he talked about Alien Raiders. <laughs> so anyway, um, <laughs> so Ilya, tell me about our war story, which is about to happen right now. Our war story is from uh, someone you've probably never heard of before named Vittorio Storaro. Never heard of him. Well, wait a second. Actually, it's not. Well, it's about Vittorio Storaro, but it's actually told by Robert Hummel. By the way, Uh, if you're on this, if you're listening to the cinematography podcast and you don't know who Vittorio is, uh, hit pause, pick up your phone, look up, uh, look him up on IMDb and uh, just let your jaw hit the floor. He shot everything you ever loved. Yes, uh, he, he, he certainly did. And we have a really great interview that we'll get to hear next time. But part of that interview was also with a with my former boss, actually, at Dulce, uh, Rob Hummel. And he tells a great story about Vittorio uh, during the pre-production of Dick Tracy. And I'm not going to say anything else. I'll just let it go from there. So here we are. It's not exactly Vittorio Storaro's uh, war story, but it's a war story about Vittorio Storaro. And now, war stories. I remember on Dick Tracy that at, at Disney, part of uh, Vittorio's palette is his film laboratory. And his film laboratory, at that time, in the days of film, was Technicolor. So at the time, the Disney studio owned a film lab called Metrocolor. And Warren Beatty was going to direct uh, Dick Tracy for the Disney studio, and he wanted Vittorio Storaro to be a cinematographer. So Vittorio said, well, if I'm going to shoot your movie, I must use Technicolor. So they had a big meeting. It was Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, Marty Katz, Jeffrey Katzenberg, 
Some uh, names. Warren Beatty. And I was there along with uh, Dave McCann, who was head of post-production. And they wanted me there because they knew I knew Vittorio. And they, they told me before this that I was supposed to convince Vittorio to use uh, Metro Color Labs. And I said, I, I won't even try. <laughs> because, uh, because uh, so, so Michael Eiser in the meeting gives this whole presentation of how much money they will save if they use Metro Color. And how that, so clearly, Vittorio, you see, we have no choice. We, ha we can't use Technicolor. They're so much more expensive. Well, we have to use Metricolor where we'll save money. Also uh, because we only use ENR. Yeah, yeah, and, and also, <laughs> yeah, and, and you want to use ENR, which is a, System. a unique process. Other people call it bleach by bypass, but Technicolor's was slightly different. And, and the, But the best part was Michael Eiser makes this whole pitch, and, and Vittorio stands up and graciously says, you know, Dick Tracy is a wonderful movie. Warren is an amazing director. And with the Walt Disney Studio, this movie will be a wonderful motion picture. Unfortunately, not with Vittorio Storaro. <laughs> and he turned and walked out of the conference room, and, and Michael Eisner jumped out of his chair and chased him down the hallway. <laughs> that was quite a story, and not surprising at all, knowing that, uh, you know, Vittorio is has been one of the most legendary DPs forever. You expect nothing less. Yeah, and that story will be in the uh, will be in the episode next week. So if for some reason you want to hear that again, uh, we'll, we'll have it in the next. This one. This time you'll hear it without music or sound effects or whatever we did because I haven't heard it yet. Yeah, we 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 are not going to put any music or sound effects. Just let it play on. Yeah, yeah, we'll try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Ben, what's your uh, short end this week? My short end is a TV series that I guess is getting enough. It, it's getting some some uh, heat. It's very it's very good, but you know, I, I actually heard about it on another podcast. It's called Escape at Denimura, and it is uh, the true story of a prison escape that happened two three years ago in uh, I believe New York State at Clinton Correctional Facility, and it stars Benicio del Toro and Paul Dano and Patricia Arquette in a jaw-dropping performance that you have never seen her do anything like this before. And I'm like, I've always thought Patricia Arquette was a fine actor, but oh my God. And it is directed by Ben Stiller, who, you know, we all know Ben Stiller from, you know, Zoolander and, you know, the funny funnies that he does. And this movie is, uh, it's not a movie, it's a, it's a seven-hour uh, miniseries. It's not uncomedic but it's not especially comedic it is just a brilliant drama i would say one of the best prison break stories i've seen in a long time and it is entirely shot uh, by a woman named jessica lee gagne i believe is how you pronounce her last name and she hasn't shot anything that this is probably her introduction to american audiences most of the stuff she's done has been out of america uh, the cinematography in this movie, uh, or in this, I keep calling it a movie, the cinematography on this TV series is gritty, it's crisp, it's, it can be dark and noirish. She's, uh, she's someone we should probably try and get on the show. I'm, I'm really blown away with the camera work and the visual design of this show, which is, you know, it's, it's one of those things, again, where it's about people who are all deceiving each other. And uh, and it does a really good job of kind of creating a modern I, I don't want to call it noir. It's not noir, but it's like a, uh, it's almost a con game between between three different people. And uh, and it's 
and it's beautiful and it's dark. And I know that Ben Stiller was nominated for a DGA award. And I think Patricia Arquette was nominated for a SAG award, if I'm mm. not mistaken. Wow. But um, she's been nominated for something. So like, I think it's getting a lot of attention, but it's weird in this world of peak television, you know, an amazing show like this just kind of goes relatively, it's, it, it, you have to, you have to have somebody say, check this out. So I'm here to say it's on Showtime. You, you can get Showtime on your, uh, you know, Roku or whatever, you know, for 10 bucks a month. It would be worth it if you don't already have Showtime to get it. Watch the whole thing. It's uh, it's it's brilliant. I've watched a few of the episodes twice. It's got some amazing sequences. It's amazing looking. Uh, I, I, it's one of those things where I think, you know, we're going to look back on television in this period of time and be like, you know, so many masterpieces were just kind of shot out at us so quickly we it's hard to see them all that is a ringing endorsement i will totally watch this it sounds fantastic i think you'll dig it i think you'll really like it i think if you like stuff like the shawshank redemption or prison break or whatever but to me it's like i mean shawshank redemption obviously is a, is a very stylized period piece and this is has a style to it but it's you know it's very very modern and if there is anything that feels ben stillerish about it it's it's ironic use of music but that's not really cinematography specific but i think uh Whoever did the music supervision on that show also deserves uh, some kind of recognition. Anyway, so what is your short end, Ilya? Well, uh, speaking of Shawshank Redemption, uh, my short end actually is the American Society of Cinematographers' 100 milestone films of the 20th century. All of which were the Shawshank Redemption. No, but the Shawshank Redemption is listed in in that in that list. And of that sort of 100 milestones over the last 100 years, uh, there's some interesting names that pop up a, a few times, some other names which which actually are, are omitted. But I got to say that uh, the top 10 list is totally a who's who of cinematographers, of movies. And the number one movie that they list in their top 10 is Lawrence of Arabia. If you've never Not seen surprising. Lawrence of Arabia, yeah, it's it is it's a masterpiece, and uh, the ASC has called it the number one milestone of the last of, of the last century. Which is in, in terms of cinematography, in terms of cinematography, which is phenomenal. Uh, number two, you've definitely seen. I know you love is Blade Runner. Oh God, yeah, yeah, uh, fantastic. Number three. Uh, are your our guests on the next episode, Vittorio Storaro. In fact, Vittorio is, I believe, one of only two cinematographers on this list to be named five times. Whoa. And he's the only one with two in their top ten, which is so. Impressive. So so number three is a Vittorio movie, and which one is it? Uh, it is Apocalypse Now. Of course. Yeah. Uh, number four, Citizen Kane, which... Uh, Citizen Kane comes in number four on this list. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Godfather, uh, number five. Raging Bull, number six, uh, also yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, you can't argue with any of these. Uh, Vittorio Storaro, again, for The Conformist. Nice. Uh, also fantastic. Uh, Days of Heaven, number eight, which I've mentioned on this podcast before. Uh, number nine, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And then number 10, The French Connection, which, you know, still, for, for my money, one of the best car chases of all time. Oh, so. it's it's the car chase that every car chase movie is is attempting to recreate the excitement of. Indeed. So anyway, it's a it's a wonderful thing. It's free. You can log on to the ASC website. Uh, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you can also I put I put a link to it up there. I made it public actually. And even if you're not friends, friends. with Ilya, just add, he yeah. needs friends. Just just friend requests. Desperately him. need friends. Yeah. <laughs> friends I've never met before. Please, I'm so lonely. Anyway, this this is this is wonderful. It's got tons of great stuff in here. And the one that I mentioned before, the only time Roger Deakins is mentioned on here is Shawshank Redemption, 1994.
That's the only deacons that got on the list? Let me tell you, this is this is elite company here with all kinds of so no incredible... So no Cone Brothers, or did they do like Miller's Crossing and it was uh, Barry Sonnenfeld Oh, or actually, something. I didn't check Miller's Crossing. I'll have to, I'll have to check if... Uh, I don't know. No, it does, doesn't appear that's in there. So, but uh, Well, that list is incorrect then, because <laughs> Miller's Crossing is the best film ever made. <laughs> Seven Samurais in here. It's, it, goes by, it goes by year. Uh, Vertigo's in here. Dr. Zhivago's in here. Uh, the Exorcist is in here. Last Tango in Paris. I mean, is all, there only one per year? Uh, no, not at all. Like 1979 has a bunch. Uh, 1979 has Alien, all that jazz being there. Black Stallion and Manhattan. And then 1980, a big one for me, The Shining, nice. one of my favorite movies of all time. Chariots of Fire, 81. Das Boot, 81. Reds, 81. I would figure like 1994, the year of the Shawshank Redemption, like you'd have Pulp Fiction. Would that be on that list? Uh, no. As a matter of fact, the only movie from 94 is the Shawshank Redemption. Crazy. But, but listen but listen to like the next few years, which are all also amazing too. Like 95 is seven, Darius Kanji. 96 is John Seal for the English patient. Number seven is LA Confidential, Dante Spinotti, one of my favorite, you know. LA looking, Confidential, yeah. I will say is the most underrated movie in sh- I'm going to get underrated. Really? I'm going to get hate mail for this, but it should have beaten Titanic for best picture. I I agree a hundred percent. My money was on LA confidential. It's such a great movie. (laughs) I I could watch, I have watched LA confidential. I bet it's one of those movies. I feel like if you gave me the raw footage, I could cut together the final movie. I've seen that movie dozens of times. So good. So good. Uh, 98, uh, Giannis Kaminsky for saving private Ryan. Uh, Thin Red Line, John Toll in 98, and American Beauty, Conrad Hall in 99. Conrad Hall, that other cinematographer with five inclusions on this list. Of course. That I noticed. And I'm assuming one of them is the only movie that was ever made in Esperanto called Incubus, which he shot. It stars William Shatner. It was made in like 1968. I don't see it in Come on, Incubus. It's not. Man, it's so underappreciated. Uh, 99, Conrad Hall, I said American Beauty. Also 99, The Matrix, Bill Pope. And then 2000, the last year of, uh, of the of the 20th century uh christopher doyle for in the mood for love which i don't know if you ever saw but that's a gorgeous beautiful film yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic it's, is that one car why it is one car okay. yeah so but man no cohen brothers oh well well i don't know if there's no cohen brothers i gotta say i have to, to comb through it here there is a hundred movies to, to, to look at so um uh, but it's, not, it's not listed by cohen brother it's listed by cinematographer <laughs> so uh yeah I, I would have to go through it i just made mental note every time i saw conrad hall every time i saw Vittorio storaro uh the we're rights, losing listeners by the hour right now i'm the sorry, stuff, sorry the, the, caleb deschanel's in oh, there for, yeah, yeah. for 83 uh, there's all kinds of uh, great stuff in here and it goes back to the beginning of time well the beginning of the well I'd be disgusted with myself of how many like decades I have spent watching all of the movies on this list and I like I've seen almost all of them I bet you've probably seen all of them the the first one on here is 1927 and it's Metropolis which oh, uh, Fritz I, I, Lang I own that on DVD in oh fact my god it's such a great movie on though. digital versatile disc <laughs> I own a copy of that Wizard of Oz 1939 never heard of it okay Bicycle Thief yeah if I went to film school I had to watch yeah. that uh, okay, good. Sunset Boulevard, 1950. That's course, a classic. Yes. Yeah, okay. On the Waterfront, Seven Samurai, Night of the Hunter. Oh, I, that Night of the Hunter is fantastic. So, uh, anyway, Bridge Over the River Kwai, Touch of Evil. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic list. So, so awesome. Ben, where can people find you? Uh, right here in your office at this table. <laughs> uh, you can find me on. <laughs> you can find me at home changing diapers, wiping <laughs> spit much, up. Yeah, yeah. That's a <laughs> well, changing poopy diapers. I'm uh, I'm on Twitter as uh, at Neptune Salad. I'm on I'm on Facebook. You can check out my website, which is BenRockOnline.com, because some douchey boat company has BenRock.com <laughs> and they won't let me have it. 
<laughs> even though they're not using it. True story. And uh, yeah, any anywhere where the social media has happened, except for Snapchat, because I'm apparently too old to understand Snapchat. You're over 15, so yeah. sorry. Sorry about that. Anyway, how about yourself? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. And of course, I'm on all the usual things. Oh, we know we should encourage people to follow our Instagram. We're actually posting little synopses of all of our guests. So this one will go up on Instagram here shortly as well, too. And we're at the Cinepod on Instagram. Nice. That's great. So uh, before we go, we should, uh, as always, we should thank uh, Kay Zalatrakshi for giving us 100% of the music that you hear on this uh, podcast. Thanks, Kay's. Go to his website www.musicbykays.com uh, hire him for something or just like ask him a question and say that you love his music on the cinematography podcast for god's sakes one person just say something nice to case he, he needs the ego boost our editor for this episode is ben katz thank you ben you kick ass as always so uh that is it for episode 28 of the cinematography podcast tune in to hear vittorio storaro on our next episode i, I think one or two people want to hear that thanks a lot we'll see you soon this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on itunes and connect with us on facebook and twitter thanks for listening